Let me begin this morning with a little bit of an update for individuals. As many of you know, we have been preparing for a trip to Haiti. And I'm sure that many of you have been watching the developments uh, regarding the unrest that has been occurring in Haiti. Uh, Such unrest is not uncommon in that part of the world. However, it typically only lasts a few days, giving a voice to those who typically do not have a voice. Uh, The situation this time around is a bit unique. Uh, as the violence and the unrest continue still. Uh, The United States government, in light of the unrest, placed Haiti on a level four watch list, which basically means they do not recommend any travel uh, to that particular nation at this time. As a result, after talking with the full-time missionaries uh, who are there on a consistent basis, we have made the decision to put off our trip to Haiti that was scheduled for August the 3rd, Um, It will still take place, but it will not be on August the 3rd. Instead, we are looking at perhaps uh, late winter to early spring. Uh, The tickets that we purchased, we were able to get vouchers for them so that as long as we go before March 28th, the date that we purchased the tickets, we can still use those tickets. And that is the plan moving forward. Uh, We felt as though it was the wisest choice for us at this time. Honestly, I hate the idea of canceling or postponing the trip, Uh, but I think that for the safety of those who are going, it makes sense. So that is the update. Thank you for those of you who have already helped support uh, to help get us to be able to go. We will um, still be going, so it wasn't wasted efforts or resources. Thank you for your generosity in helping to make that possible. Um, Gene Nidich was a 214-pound homemaker desperate to lose weight. She went to the New York City Department of Health where she was given a diet devised by Dr. Norman Joliffe. Two months later, discouraged about the 50-plus pounds that she still needed to lose, She invited six overweight friends home to share the diet and talk about how to stay on it. Today, 42 years later, one million members attend 25,000 Weight Watcher meetings in over 24 countries every single week. Nobody likes the idea of becoming desperate, but often desperation breeds hope, and in her case, it breeds opportunity. A combination of frustration and desperation can be one of the greatest things in the world. There are many things that lead to desperation, things like failure, natural disaster, and even immorality, just to name a few. It is this last one where immorality leads to desperation that I want to talk about today. As we've seen over and over again, as we have looked through the book of Judges, it has been immorality that has led the people to a point of desperation. The people act with immorality, and a sense of brokenness and desperation arises. We've seen it over and over again, and it's what we see again here in Judges chapter 10. I'm going to ask if you would, if you turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. I'm going to tell you already that the story actually encompasses chapters 10, 11, and 12, and we will look at sections of it and then summarize other sections of it this morning. Today I would like for us to start in Judges chapter 10, and we'll read verses 6 and 7 to get us started. It says this, 
Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So just as we've seen in all of the other stories that we've looked at so far in Judges, the sin of the people of Israel leads to suffering and desperation. The sin is described is very similar to what we've seen in the other situations where they stopped worshiping the one true living God and now they find themselves worshiping other gods. Now, if you were counting, is that me? I hear a voice. It's okay. Uh, If you were counting the gods there in Judges chapter 10, you will see that there were a total of seven other gods that are mentioned. It may not seem like a big deal, but it's actually pretty significant. You see, in the Bible, seven is considered the number of completion. In other words, the people have become fully disobedient to God. They have moved from just worshiping one or two other gods to the point that they have decided all of these gods can meet the needs of the people, when in reality, those gods will never be able to meet those needs. They have completely turned their backs on the one true God. The result of this full disobedience is simple. Their idolatry has led to enslavement. And then in the midst of their enslavement, they've cried out to more false gods. And when those false gods disappoint disappoint them, it leads once again to more enslavement. They find themselves trapped in an endless cycle of defeat. For these people, the words of God ring true from Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 12 to 15, which says, Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the as punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure because of your great guilt and many sins? I have done these things to you. That is God speaking to the people of Israel. What happens when little g gods disappoint us? How do we respond? According to Tim Keller, he says that there are four responses people will give. The first is they blame their false god. They blame the god because he's unable to do what they hoped he would be able to do. Somehow he disappoints. Sometimes they will blame themselves. They'll look upon themselves and say, well, you know, this is something that I know I should do, but maybe I've done something wrong somewhere along the way. It should work. What I'm doing here should satisfy my needs. Sometimes the individual blame the world around them. They look at the the world around them and they realize the brokenness that is there. And instead of actually solving the problem, they have either blamed the false God, they've blamed themselves or they've blamed the world. But there is a fourth response, according to Tim Keller. Simply realize that we were not made for these false gods. 
We were not made for the brokenness of this world. We were made for something far bigger and far better. Well, the Israelites realized that they were made for something far bigger and far better. And so they begin to cry out to God. Their false gods have disappointed. So perhaps there is one God who can meet their needs. But truthfully, it is a curious encounter that they have with God. Look at the passage with me, beginning in verse 10. It says, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Listen to the Lord's response. When the Egyptians and the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Boy, that's a scary conversation to have with God. First, I want you to note that those nations that are mentioned there, it is their gods that the Israelites have begun to worship. Those gods didn't work for them, but maybe those gods will work for us. So we'll go and worship these false gods, and maybe they won't be false for us. God's basically looking at them and saying, well, how's that working out for you? How's that working out? Are those gods helping you? Because here you are, you've gone to those gods, and now you're suffering. Now you're coming back to me for help. Tell you what, go get them to help you instead. Within this response of God, we see God in the emotional state. You know, God is an emotional being. God loves his people, but there's a sense of frustration. Why would you keep going back to those false gods? There's one God who's able to meet your needs. Look at the next verse there. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Do you see the hesitation in the voice of God as he is being asked to do this saving work? I suggest to you that God was not hesitant to bring forgiveness and redemption to the people of God. It may look like it, but look closer at what's happening here. First of all, God wanted them to realize that their sin is incredibly foolish. Why do you keep going back to the same things that they didn't satisfy you before? They certainly didn't satisfy your enemies. So why do you go to them when you know that I'm the one who can satisfy you? I'm the one who can meet your need. It's not that he didn't want to save them. He just wanted them to realize that what you're doing is dumb. Before you begin to judge the people of Israel here, consider for a moment the many ways that we have acted just as foolish. Maybe your God is not Ashtoreth, but perhaps for you it's your money or your job. Maybe it's your family. There are all kinds of gods that we tend to worship, although they're little g gods and we might not refer to them as such. 
There are all kinds of things that we have assumed that if we pursue them enough, at some point they will satisfy us. They won't. They haven't. And they never will. I think God looks at us sometimes and he says, what made you think this time would be different? There is one God who can satisfy and one God alone. He is the one that you need to cry out to, not all of your false gods. Those things lead to disappointment. The second message that God is trying to get across to the people is that talk is cheap. Notice what they didn't do in their first appeal to God as opposed to the second appeal to God in our passage there. They confessed that they had sinned and they asked for God to help. But it's not until verse 16 that we see them get rid of their foreign gods. It would seem that the initial appeal was somewhat of an invitation to God to just be one God among the many gods. We've already got these seven other gods that we are worshiping. God, we need your help. Can you come join the club? God has no, to, no desire to be one among the many. He is the only God who can help. And the idea that somehow we can still have all of these other gods as a part of our lives and give them the position of prominence in our lives and still claim that we have the one true living God in our lives, God says, that's just as dumb as going after those gods in the first place. I'm not content with you talking about making me a priority. I want you to act upon it. God wanted them to get rid of their idols, to no longer worship those things, and to truly make him the God of everything. Well, it's at this point that we are introduced to perhaps the most unorthodox of judges. Certainly, his story is kind of crazy. In fact, it's probably the reason why we hear so little about this individual. But it reveals to us the fact that the people's desperation does lead to hope, even if it wasn't really what they were expecting. In 2010, the film 127 Hours was released, telling the true story of a hiker who became trapped after getting his arm stuck in some rocks. He was in such a remote location that there was nobody there to help him. And after hours of trying to work himself free and crying out in hopes that someone might come by and help him, he reached that point of desperation. He took a rusty knife and he proceeded to cut his hand off. It was the only way he could become free. While his life would never again be the same, his desperate act gave him hope. There would be another day. Well, today as we look, I want you to see the hope of Israel. As they turn to God and God provides a deliverer, but I would call him a broken deliverer. Look at Judges 11 verses 1 through 8 with me for a moment. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. 
So Jephthah fled, with his, fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? I'm going to stop there. We're going to go back to verse 8 in just a moment. But there is an incredible parallel to the conversation they just had with God. And now the conversation they're having with Jephthah. Didn't you reject me? Didn't you push me away because you wanted nothing to do with me? And now you come back to me? You remember God's response? Go and worship those gods. Call on them for your help. Now we see Jephthah, and he basically gives the same response. Didn't you send me away, and you wanted nothing to do with me, and now you want my help? The elders of Gilead said to him in verse 8, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. What we see here is a man who has been rejected by his own people. He has been hated by his people, yet now his people come to him crying for his help. There's just this, there's this sense of justification that Jephthah has to have that day. Yeah, you guys said you didn't need me, but guess what? You really did need me. It's not all that different from the story of Joseph found in the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph is the son of Jacob. As he is the, I'm sorry, yeah, jo Joseph is the son of Jacob. And Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. And his brothers decide, we hate this guy. We don't want him to be a part of our lives, so let's kill him. Long story short, instead of killing him, they sell him as a slave to Egypt. Well, wouldn't you know it? The day would come that those same brothers who wanted to kill him and instead sold him as a slave to Egypt, they would come down to Egypt needing help. And who would they have to ask for help? Joseph. Can you imagine the sense of almost, I picture Joseph being torn inside. There's a part of him, his heart was broken because those old wounds open back up when he sees his brothers coming. And he knows who they are and he knows what they did. And maybe as his heart opens back up and those wounds open back up, he becomes a little bit angry and he wants to punish them for what they did. But also this sense of, those are my brothers. I haven't seen them in years. And here they are. And of course now he's in a position where he can help them. You know, it appears to me that there are many times God chooses those who end up being broken and rejected to turn them into something great and to do incredible things. The title of the message this morning that Jerry referenced earlier has to do with God using imperfect people. There's no question Jephthah is a man who is broken, but he is the one that God would choose to do something significant in. What we begin to discover, though, is Jephthah is one who has been very much influenced by his culture. Look at Judges 11, verse 29 to 31. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, 
passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now I'm going to stop there for a minute. We'll continue in a moment. But I want you to realize, culturally speaking, uh, my first thought is maybe we're talking about an animal that he's going to sacrifice. But culturally speaking, it was considered unclean to have any type of animal inside the house at that moment in time. So he's not talking about an animal coming out of the house. What is more likely is his thought is it'll be one of his servants, one of his slaves that will come through the door. And what he just did was made a vow, Lord, if you will grant me this victory, I will sacrifice that servant. I will give a human sacrifice so that I can get that win. By the way, he didn't need the sacrifice. God had already appointed him to be the judge. He was going to walk in victory. God was going to provide for him. He didn't need to make this vow. Skip down to verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My first thought here is, did God just encourage child sacrifice? And this is a story that we don't hear a whole lot about. We talk about Deborah, we talk about Samson, we talk about Gideon. Those are, those are the judges that their stories make a whole lot of sense to us. Did God just encourage child sacrifice through Jephthah? The answer is absolutely not. In fact, Deuteronomy 18.10 explicitly forbids such an act. God never told him to sacrifice his child. God never even told him to make such a vow. So where did it come from? It came from a man who had been so influenced by his society and his culture that he found it easier to blend culture and faith into one, blurring the lines of what God truly expected. This was a man who he had been a part of the world for so long that now he is in this position of savior, rescuer, deliverer for the people of Israel, but he's bringing all the influence from the culture into his leadership of the people of Israel. But their faith, there was a time that their faith would influence the culture around them, but instead they now find that their faith is merely a reflection of the culture. The result is that Israel is eventually restored. Jephthah does deliver them, but what he delivers to them is a diminished type of restoration. Like the guy who cut off his arm for survival purposes, there was a cost to all of this. It would never be the same. Remember earlier in the book of Judges, we're told that when God would deliver the people of Israel, they would then follow God for a long period of time in righteousness as long as the judge was alive. 
What happens when the judge's faith is now driven by the culture? He is not going to point them to the godliness that God requires. The result of a diminished faith is that internal turmoil will develop. It's true from a personal perspective, as much as it is from within this story. From a personal perspective, the lukewarm Christian life can be the most conflicted life possible. You know what you should be doing, but for whatever reason, you don't do it. Then you feel guilty over it, and I know you should be able to enjoy the sin and whatever the activity is that you're doing, but you know that it's wrong, so you really can't even enjoy it the way you want to because you're already feeling guilty and ashamed of the things that were going on. So often what happens, those who are in the body of Christ, we play with Christianity. We want to live the Christian life, but we've been so influenced by our culture that we no longer impact culture, but rather we reflect culture. Culture has become a part of our faith to the point that we no longer stand out. I was talking with someone this week, and they were told by somebody else that they are simply too Christian. They no longer can relate to society because of the fact that they are too much like Christ. Let me assure you that is not possible. The problem is that for far too many of us, we are far more interested in being like culture than we are like Christ. And what happens is we no longer stand out in a broken world. As someone mentioned to me this morning, we are called to be in the world but not of the world. We should stand out as those who have been redeemed by Christ and are being transformed by Christ. Apparently, in this setting, culture had invaded their faith to the point that they merely reflected the culture. As we look at the internal turmoil that existed among the people of Israel, we're told in chapter 12 that Jephthah ends up fighting against The Ephraimites. Now, who are the Ephraimites? Ephraimites are Israelite children. They fight against the Israelite brothers, and as they do so, the result is that 12,000 Ephraimites will die. Certainly, this is not the way God ever intended it to be. But it's what happens when we blend culture and faith, and we no longer have those clear lines of what God expects. The final thing that is diminished is the length of time which they experience their peace. Judges 12, 7 reveals that the peace only lasts for about seven years. Well, if we go back to the beginning of this story, we see that they are oppressed for 18 years. The scale has been turned upside down. Until now, we've seen limited oppression and significant peace. Now we see abundant oppression and very limited peace. And what it all comes down to is this sinful cycle that they have gotten on doesn't get better without having God intervene. Every time God intervenes and he helps them and it becomes a moment of restoration, but it seems as though the restoration is lasting shorter and shorter because the sin is so enticing and they just keep going back to it over and over and over again. My question is this, is 
lasting peace possible for God's people? And my response is it is. But it will not come easy. We live in a world that's very broken. Very, very broken. It is not unusual to turn on the news and have differing points of view, but you see people from the political spectrum fighting against each other, verbally assaulting each other, calling each other names. You see in your homes, you have husbands and wives, moms and dads that have become physically violent toward one another. And if it's not physical, they yell at each other constantly. And there is no peace within that home. You have children that, actually I was reading an article this week and it was talking about children attacking their parents. Go on the news, it it won't take long for you to find situations where children have assaulted or even killed their parents. We live in a world that needs peace so desperately. So how is it that we can have a lasting peace? How can we have a peace that will not fade away in a few years or in a few weeks or even a few days? The only way to find that peace is through Jesus Christ. Each time the the Israelites would find themselves in the midst of their brokenness and desperation... They would cry out to the Lord and he would grant the peace. The peace was always there for them if they would only take it. But somewhere along the way, they were not satisfied with it. And I'm telling you, all of the other stuff, it's dumb. That's what God says to them here. Those those gods you were crying out to, that's dumb. You want help? Go get it from them. That's what Jephthah says to him. I thought you didn't want anything to do with me. Tell you what, go get somebody else to take care of you. We need you now. So in each case, they respond. What I want you to know today is that the only place you will ever be able to find that peace is in God himself. All of the things that you work for, all of the things that you're seeking out, the relationships that you have made a priority in your life, the things that you need to have to find your fulfillment, at some point all of those things, they won't be enough. Jesus Christ will be enough. He is the only one who can provide for your every need. You want a lasting peace? You have to find it through Him. I know we live in a broken world and it's still going to be broken even after we find Christ. Even though we pursue Christ, we're still going to be surrounded by those who are broken around us. And I I just tell you, you're right. But Jesus Christ still offers us a peace that passes all understanding. But we cannot experience that if we're just playing the game. Go back to them with their gods. Only the second time when God's already told them, you know what? I don't think I'm the one to save you this time. Only then, only then did they throw away their other gods. I don't know the things that have become a priority in your life. I don't know the things that you live for. But I'm telling you, those things will not satisfy. It is time to throw away those gods. And it is time to put your hope and your faith solely in Jesus Christ. As you do so, you will experience a lasting peace. I know there comes a day when the Lord comes back and he's going to give us a peace that passes all understanding for all eternity. Never again will there be any violence, any destruction. You'll never again have to deal with death and sickness and sin and all of those things. That'll be an incredible peace. 
But I'm telling you, he's offering you peace today. If only you'll trust in him and him alone. Every one of us can walk in that peace today, regardless of where you've been, regardless of how unrestful you've been up until this point. I was thinking this week of Haiti, and of course, it has to do with the fact that we are preparing for this mission trip, and I, I think of all the unrest. The State Department issued a warning yesterday of riots that were taking place, and they were listing the different locations. There were 15 to 20 locations that were listed just yesterday where unrest was present. That's a place where I have seen the peace of God. Ironically, when I saw the peace of God most clearly, it was right after the earthquake that took place several years ago. I was there probably about two, three months after the earthquake had taken place, and I had the opportunity to preach in a church. There were probably a couple hundred people that were there that Sunday, and of course, they don't speak English. I had a translator, and they interpreted everything, and um, they interpreted for me initially, and as I was preparing to get up to preach, the interpreter, which actually many of you have met, Carl Giles, he came and spoke here at the church. Carl turned to me, he said, every person in this church lost either a parent, a sibling, or a child in the earthquake. Thousands of people who had died. Yet as I watched them worship, I saw an incredible peace. In the midst of their brokenness, they realized that God was present and he was there with them and he would provide for them. Maybe what we need is a little bit of brokenness in our lives. So that we can be a little more aware of God's presence and his work in us. I share that with you. Believing that God desires to grant you his peace. Are you ready to receive it? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today. But we don't understand why you put people like Jephthah in the Bible. His story is strange. He's an immoral man influenced by an immoral society. Yet he became your instrument. And you used him to help bring peace. Lord, we are imperfect people. And I pray, first of all, that you would use us in all of our imperfections to be peacemakers in our world. Help us to bring the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that some of the brokenness that we experience is simply because of our own foolish choices. It's been our own sin that has caused us to reach a point of desperation where we cry out to you and we're asking for your help, for you to intervene. We keep going back to these false gods thinking that somehow they will satisfy us, but they never do. But I pray that you would help us to seek you with our whole hearts and to realize that you are the only one who can truly bring satisfaction and peace. Lord, as we come before you today, we pray that we don't have to go through this incredible time of brokenness like the people of Haiti had to, to find their peace. But I do pray that whatever peace we find in you, there would always be enough. We know your peace is a lasting peace. Help us to seek you out with our whole hearts. 
and to walk in that peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do encourage you. This is a, I told you it's a strange one. We don't talk about Jephthah very often. Actually, I got excited when I realized that I was going to get to preach on Jephthah. Uh, this is an exciting passage because God used imperfect people. And we got a whole room full of imperfect people. If God could work through him, what could he do through you? So he could do some great things. Allow God to use you. Thank you for being with us this morning.